Hello and welcome back to Beyond Survival, the new teacher podcast. My name is Jamie Tom. I'm absolutely delighted that this is a first for the podcast. We've got two, not one, but two amazing guests on the podcast today. I'm delighted to be joined by Nasima Riazat and Jonathan Firth, who are the co-authors of the book, What Teachers Need to Know About Memory. And it's a really, really, really brilliant read. And I've learned a huge amount from reading it over the last week or so. And today we will be answering the question, what do new teachers need to know about memory? So Jonathan and Nasima, welcome to the podcast. How are you both thank today? You. Thank you. Brilliant. Maybe this will be like the end of my interviewing. This is the real test of my interviewing skills. Can I interview two people? Oh, the pressure. Multi, multi-tasking. Um, so, it's great for I know. <laughs> great challenge. And I'm a man as well, teacher. Jonathan. I can't handle that. <laughs> <laughs> so the first question I always ask guests is just a little warm-up question. And I'm wondering if you don't mind maybe taking about 60 seconds each on this, if that's okay. And I'll maybe get you to do a different strand on it. So the question is, what does education mean to you? But I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind as well just giving listeners a little insight into your what you do at the moment, your current roles as well. So that's a big pressure. So what does education mean to you? And can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So Jonathan, just because you're next to me on the screen, do you want to start things off? Sure. So um, I've worked in various education roles. I worked for a long time as a secondary school teacher and I'm currently um, working in a university doing um PGDE and also doing other education courses. So it's quite interesting in terms of that question because I've taken over our um, joint honours um, BA um, degree in education studies. So having always kind of worked as a, as a teacher, that takes education in a slightly broader sense, not just thinking about teaching, but also thinking about education uh, as a bigger concept, as something that we, you know, we, we engage with education throughout our lives um, we don't just it's not just about schools and about exams but it's also about other things which I think many of us teachers engage with you know education is about changing people it's about improving young people's lives and prospects it's about improving yourself and you know as you as you're an adult you're still engaging with education learning new things improving the way you think um, so I guess that's um, to some extent what education means to me. I mean, it's something you could certainly go on uh, at, at length about. And um, as well as worth saying as well, I've always really kind of been surrounded by education because my parents were were both educators. The grandparent I spent the most time with was a was a former primary teacher. So you know, it's something that is well, it's almost like a fish being surrounded by water for me. But it's nice to reflect on that on that question. Beautiful. Thank you for that, Jonathan. Yeah, I love that notion of that education as not being something that's just cor- sort of cornered in school. It's something that's a lifelong process and how that evolves over time. Yeah, brilliant stuff. Nasima, what about yourself? Uh, well, I went into education in 2003, went back to retrain as a teacher. And for me, it was very much about um, removing barriers and obstacles to achievements for students, improving their life chances. Um, and really making that difference, um, you know, to, to supporting them to get where they want to be in the future. And my current role at the moment, I work in a secondary school as a middle leader, so I have quite a varied role, which was really useful when we were writing this book in terms of thinking from a practitioner point of view, because I know, Jonathan, you were very much the um, 
academia theory and I was sort of that's how we kind of worked isn't it so at the moment I'm head of business studies PHSE RSE careers and I look after the school's vocational provision so quite a lot of a varied role there and um, I really really enjoy just finding out more about education so that inspired me to become a leader and one of the reasons why I was particularly interested in writing this book is that at the moment, um, across education, we're moving toward terminal exams and being able to support students to be able to recall their learning and be confident about it and giving teachers new skills because education changes rapidly, as we all know. Um, and it's about being up to date with all the skills it can possibly have to best support the students to be able to get the best outcomes that they possibly can yeah brilliant thank you for sharing that and I, I really do love that about the book that it marries and it brings together research practical implications for classroom teachers and it's really interesting to get those different perspectives on it and that is a really nice link there Nassima thank you for that into the rationale for this conversation I think in terms of focusing on memory and that for me is a really important point this notion that Secondary education in particular at the moment, memory is an integral skill that young people need in order to secure their positive futures through exams and all those different aspects. But it's also for me a wider conversation in terms of Jonathan's point about education sustaining itself in that memory for us as adult learners, for people who have that interest in in recalling and remembering things is such an integral skill. So I'm going to ask a really big question, and I think this is going to be one of our challenges today in terms of managing to have this conversation in 40 minutes. So that first big question, and feel free to jump in whoever wants to take on this challenge, is just how would you describe memory? What is memory? I'll um, like jumping on first, could you? All right, okay. Um, Yeah, so I think... um, Memory obviously involves, to some extent, retaining things for future use, whether it's knowledge and skills. And I'm certainly in schools, we're thinking a lot about knowledge and skills. We're thinking about remembering stuff. You need to know this for your chemistry exam. You need to know. You need to know these these facts, these particular sort of routines and and, and things for for, you know, for maths for whatever. Um, but I think it does underlie everything else. So in terms of those sort of broader points that you were you were touching on. Um, you know, one thing that I, I look at quite a lot with our undergrads is critical thinking and, and things like our ability to, you know, young people's ability to go online and not be subject to misinformation. Well, you know, these very everyday things are actually underpinned by memory because you have to have some knowledge and you have to kind of uh, be able to regulate your own learning and, and understand your own knowledge to some extent and recognize, um, retain the ability to, to critique, for example. All of these things are stored in memory. So I think memory is way broader than people often think. People think about it as retaining facts, but it actually really underpins our understanding, our ability to do things as well, um, you know, to, to read, to think. All of this is kind of underpinned by memory. So it's very, very broad and perhaps doesn't work the way that people think it does, um, which is one of the, I guess, one of the professional challenges. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, sorry, Nassima, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, for me, from a classroom practitioner point of view, memory, I mean, we taught how to get content across to students in teacher training and in CPD, but we don't really unpick how memory works and, and how we can best integrate that, because I'm very much a firm believer 
that memory shouldn't be something that should be done right at the end of a course. It should be something that begins from day one of teaching. It's incorporated into leave through the um, lessons that you do day in, day out. It's just part of everyday teaching, just like marking is, just like assessment is. And it's about being able to unpick, well, what does that actually look like in the classroom? What would I see? you know when memory is working well because memory is a bit of an abstract concept it's not something that you can see in the same way that you can see it's something that you experience of a fashion um and it's a real challenge i think at the moment in terms of getting to actually really unpick and have one clear definition of what does this mean what does it look like is is a challenge and it's been able for me as well to apply the learning to schema so memory fits in with the previous prior learning that students have had and then once they've been able to recall that learning to actually then be able to apply it to new situations so if we're looking at the higher grades in their exams their terminal exams we're pushing them to make progress they not only need to be able to recall which is the lower end of the ability scale they need to then be able to not only recall it but then be able to apply that learning into new concepts and, and it's almost about training it's a new way of thinking about memory it's not a bolt-on it's not an add-on it's something that we do part and parcel of everyday teaching hmm. yeah it's really interesting i think when i was thinking through that question how would i answer that myself which in itself is not something we're asked to do as teachers very often which is interesting given just how vital nasima you're touching on this just how vital it is as a skill i think i would initially go for Jonathan's point about its its retention but then what you've both done there is it's just opened up that perspective in the sense of it's much wider than that it's also about your ability to to think critically to engage with the world around you and it's also about that how can you apply that retention at different moments and at different times and in different contexts and it is and it's a really really complex exploration and that leads me on to something you focus on in, in the book. And I will say that that first chapter with, that answers that question, what is memory, is something I found really, really interesting. So obviously one of the things you talk about is the, the difference between long-term and working memory. And I'm interested for, 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 let's take someone like me with my very superficial understanding of this. Why is it important that I know the difference between the two? And what is the difference between the two? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's um, whether it's important or not, I guess, is something we could discuss. But um, uh, it's something that's happening, you know, and I guess my, my take on this is, is as professionals, we need professional skills. We need a professional understanding of the learning process. And, you know, whatever terminology you choose to use, there's something that's going on in the classroom. And it's helpful if we can recognize that and, and to some extent make professional choices based on that. So um, you, we probably all come across the case of students saying, oh, well, I passed my exam, but now I've forgotten all. Um, so, <laughs> you know, knowing a, like a little bit about how learning works, about how temporary some of the things that seem quite permanent because we spent you know, a double period on it and they could answer all the questions at the end and they did well in the homework and recognising when forgetting is going to start kicking in. And that's, that's pretty vital. But I'm not, I'm not sure that's really answering your question, but in terms of the difference between working memory and, and long-term memory, really a lot of things that we're talking about so far are long-term memory. And working memory is a much more temporary, um, here and now kind of process. So if you ask me a question and I try to answer it, I'm using my working memory to retain what you just said to me 
but in, in you know in 24 hours time i wouldn't in fact even half an hour's time i wouldn't be able to say what what exactly that question was i might remember the gist but that's that's because it's a long-term memory so working memories really are just kind of here and now process when a pupil is answering a question reading a sentence um solving a problem um thinking up an example um maybe maybe that's even you can work to add on that yeah um well, I think it's really important to clarify when we come to long-term and short-term memory that learning isn't the same as recall. So while we're using our working memory at that time in the classroom, we're trying to get the children to be familiar with the concept or to get used to struggling with whatever problem it is they're solving. So, for example, in business studies, I mean, that's my subject, so just use that as an example. If we're teaching the children to do break-even, Usually, by the end of a lesson, because we've carefully planned that lesson and structured it, the students will be able to perform it. And we very often then ask the students to come back, and they're using their working memory at that time. It's not going into a long-term memory. So next lesson, when I see them, I might spend five minutes just asking them questions, and they've forgotten it. They don't understand it. They can't bring it back again. And it's about understanding that you know, it is okay to forget that learning. If anything, forgetting it and remembering it and going back over it again is, is going to help it get into the long-term memory. It's okay to forget. And we have to be careful as teachers that just because students can do it in that moment when they're using their working memory, it doesn't mean that they can recall it later on. So it's really we, we need to just make that distinction when we're teaching. And also when we're... Um, Think teaching them skills, we like to think that they'd be able to use them when they go on to use their levels or university study or in their everyday life. So if it's in their long-term memory, they should be able to recall that skill much later on. Um, and we were talking in the book as well, Jonathan, you, you'll probably be able to talk more about this, is where the more times you go over a concept, the more likely it is to go into the long-term memory. So perhaps when we're planning lessons or a series of lessons, a spiral of lessons, we need to be regularly revisiting things that we've, we've done before and not just assuming that just on that one occasion students have been able to do the work, that they'll be able to do it again in three months' time. If they can do it again in three months' time, would you say, Jonathan, then it's okay to say that it's gone into the long-term memory or is that yeah i mean i think it's it's you know if somebody can still do something three months later it's a it's a pretty good sign that they'll they'll still be able to do it um you know in nine months or whenever their their exam is i mean it's always hard to say that it's going to be permanent but yeah and i think that you know that point about revisiting things <clears throat> and as nasima said about spiraling around because often we we will do things multiple times in one lesson but then a lot of forgetting kicks in. So it's also the, the timing, the, the scheduling of when we do that practice. So you're not just practicing all at one time. The lesson's today, the homework's tonight, and then we don't touch it again for six months. It's kind of thinking about that spacing and distribution of, of practice over time. So as Nassim has said, a bit of forgetting is not necessarily a bad thing because you forget something for a couple of weeks and then you do it again. It's going to be much more impactful than doing it again today. Mm. So what I might do is, is just check my very small-minded understanding of this. So what we're saying is that working memory is almost like the short-term, almost the performativity. It's the, I'm going to use the word superficial, you haven't used it, but it's that notion of a, an instant response to something. So that short-term memory. And the long-term memory strikes me, and I'll, I might ask a follow-up question about this in a second, but that's what we're really trying to hook into as, as teachers. We're really trying to secure information in our young people and our students 
long-term working memory or long-term memory. And we can do that partly through the process of forgetting, revisiting, coming back to things to help hook it in young people's memories. And what I'm interested in, well, first of all, to check, was I talking nonsense there? Is that is that kind of the gist? Yeah, that's that's pretty much right, though. Um, I think when we talk about performance, we're, we're not necessarily talking about just about working memory, because if you think about something like at the end of a lesson, 50 minutes has gone past it. Well, in Scotland, it's typically 50 minutes for a, for a school lesson. Um, that's already way beyond working memory, because working memory only lasts for about 30 seconds. So um, we're, we're talking about things being in long-term memory, but it's still in quite a fragile form that's going to be quite rapidly forgotten. So it's also just kind of recognizing that um, what you have is the beginnings of a secure long-term memory, but there's there's more that needs to be done. It's not the end of the process, which makes it quite hard for us, actually, as observers, observing lessons like, what did the kids learn? Actually, we don't know, because you can't really judge learning on the basis of a, of a, you know, a single lesson. Mm, and that's where that superficially comes in, doesn't it? I guess that... And I'm guilty of this doing this myself as an observer, going, well, what, what do you think young people walked out of? What, do, what, have they, what have they got from that lesson? What's the learning there? And really what we're saying here is it's not as neat and as secure as that, that in a 50-minute block they can walk out with concrete pieces of information. And the question I was going to ask is, is how transparent with young people are you about memory? Is it something you bring into lessons and conversations with them about the long-term memory and the working memory and things like that. Is that a useful thing for us to be talking about as teachers with our students? I think it's important to, I mean, we've written a book for teachers and, and if you remember when we talked about the proposal, we were talking about perhaps writing something for students as well very early on, Jonathan, because I think sometimes we're very, very keen to get things out to teachers, but it's whether the teachers are then passing that knowledge on to the young people and it's the young people that really need that knowledge to make the difference. Um, you know, if the teachers listen to memory, they've read, but then they keep it contained. In, in their own working environment, their own classroom. It doesn't really impact on a wider. So if it have impact, I think students do need to understand. I think schools are starting to understand that memory and recall is really important. It's going to improve student outcomes and achievements. But whether that is consistently happening in terms of teacher understanding, our teachers really clear about how memory works, um, you know, understanding that, as we were saying before, it's not a neat package. It is very different because you're working with people and people have variances. They have different experiences. Some children will come to school having read lots and lots. They've had lots of life at cultural capital. They've been out. They've got a really strong, developed schema. And then you've got other students who haven't had quite, you know, if you're working in quite a deprived area, you've got children who haven't experienced that. And they're going to struggle to things, fix things in their long-term memory if they haven't got that prior knowledge and schema to be able to hook that learning onto. And I think memory is so much more than just long-term and short-term memory and strategies. I think, you know, if we were just teaching strategies, we're not doing it justice. I think it has to be sold within the whole context of, of how memory works and it's so much more than just use this strategy and use that strategy and until you've got that really clear understanding 
around how it works and, and real strategies that support that. And you can explain to the students what we're doing this because this is why it works. This is why we're doing this five-minute recall. It's not that I'm trying to make your life miserable and putting you on the spot and asking you questions. It's because the more times you forget and go over it and teaching students, it's okay to forget things because they kind of think they've been a bit naughty if they can't remember something <laughs> get into trouble for that. This is not going to be pleased with me because I can't answer a question. And it's about changing that mindset. Well, it's okay to make a mistake and it's okay to challenge schemas but it's very difficult to see somebody's long-term memory because you don't always know what their schemas are what they're basing that memory on Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's really really helpful and I think it's that notion of just articulating and rationalizing why you're doing things in a classroom with young people certainly from my experience some people something young people really buy into and and value Mm -hmm. and appreciate and I, I think that context you're providing there is really helpful in the sense of, as a teacher, you need to have that background knowledge. You need to know about memory. You need to invest in buying wonderful books, ding dong, about memory in order to <laughs> secure that understanding that then helps you rationalise why you're doing this in the classroom. And certainly my own, I, I did my PGD sort of 15 years ago now and nothing about memory was, was part of that process or about how young people learn. And I think it's an exciting development in the past few years. And I know, Jonathan, I'm trying to remember that, that and I've got your brilliant little book that's more for young people, isn't it, in terms of revision? It's like, how is it how you young how students learn? What's it called again, Jonathan? <laughs> um, yeah, it's called How to Learn, yes. Yeah, so it's a really that's short it. book um, aimed at kind it's of the upper end of secondary school or sort of beginning university students. Because, yeah, we don't, you know, as Nassim said, we often don't sort of give them the rationale. Of what's this based on? We do the thing. We don't always sort of explain to them um, why we're doing it. And I think that one thing that, um, you know, obviously this this podcast is for new teachers thinking about their practice, and that's often my focus as well. But I think we also need to think on a slightly more system-wide basis. If you're, if you're a school, if you're a leadership team, for example, how are you building this through the year groups so that it's not just like patchy and oh, we're doing a bit of this in first year and then nobody mentions it again in second year? Just like anything else, just like anything else in the curriculum, there needs to be a kind of progression and you need to build on certain foundations. So I think that, you know, probably something I would be doing or be recommending to, to uh, school leaders school leaders, and also perhaps local authorities is to think about, you know, what that looks like. How The teachers obviously are the experts and should have the expertise, but how are we actually developing self-regulated learning and an understanding of memory in young people, just like we would hopefully develop an understanding of, of, of so many other things um, through the year groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so by the time they are at the stage that Nassimo mentioned earlier in terms of examinations and retention, and then they've got those tools that are embedded and can use them and implement them effectively. Yeah, it's really helpful. Okay, so hopefully we've spent the first 20 minutes just maybe articulating and rationalising a little bit about the memory process, about the complexity of it, of some of the key strands for teachers to reflect and think about. And we might now shift a little bit more into the new teacher who's in their classroom, who's in the first five years, who's wrestling with some of these big concepts and maybe some of the practical things they can do. And we'll maybe do this in a couple of steps, if that's all right. So maybe just an an initial thing. And there's loads in the book here that teachers can take away with this. But I'm wondering what's, what's a kind of first step that newer teachers can do to support their students' capacity to remember and recall things in their lessons? 
Well, I think um, it's about being clear as a newly qualified teacher. I remember when I was a newly qualified teacher, I was absolutely overwhelmed with not just having to learn the content because it's the first time that you're delivering it, it's the first time you're taking students through. Um, it's quite a pressured time. You're trying to pick up lots and lots of, you know, with experience, you're kind of adding things as you go along. But when you're newly qualified into the job, it, it's just another thing to have to think about. And I think it's really important that we're very clear and, and you know, newly qualified teachers get support if they need to. And learning isn't the same as teaching, and teaching isn't the same as recall. And being able to very clearly identify well, what part of my lesson falls into these different categories. So when am I teaching? When am I actively practicing recall with the students? When am I actually checking their learning? How am I measuring that this learning is actually going into the long-term memory and interleaving? And in my classroom specifically, what I do is I always say that teaching is in three stages. So stage one is where you actively give the students the content. So it might be a knowledge organiser, it might be a lesson, it might be on Seneca Learning or whatever it might be. You're presenting the content to the students. And then I always say to the students, um, and this is useful for new, new teachers to know as well, that stage two is where you then get the students to break that learning down. So I kind of use the analogy of a jigsaw puzzle. So we've got the full picture on stage one, so we can see what the picture looks like. We're now going to break it all down. And then in stage three, you need to put the picture back together, but using different strategies. And one of the ones that I quite like and the students seem to understand quite well is generative learning by Fiorella and Meyer. There's eight very clear strategies which don't need a lot of um, explanation. It's something you can literally pick and use in your next lesson. The students understand what summarising is, what teaching is. And I would say to somebody who is working with me as a newly qualified teacher, thinking about memory, think about the teaching as being stage one, the classroom activity that you do with them to break down, so get them to actively learn, because active learning will help them to process it using the working memory. And then in stage three is the interleaving and then getting them to put it back in a different format. So you can see what misconceptions there are. But it's but sometimes as teachers, we do stage one really well and a bit of stage two because we kind of run out of time and they're running out of the door just as you're setting the homework and we forget it all about stage three. Sometimes we don't even know stage three even exists because it's not being made explicit. So I think if we look at that three-stage model when you're planning a lesson and it's stage three that we say to them, it's not stage one because you can get a revision guide from WH Smith and teach yourself stage one, it's stage two and three that need the skilled practitioner to really break it down and get the students to put that learning back together and then be able to recall it several times. So I would be looking at my schemes of work and saying, right, you know, half term one, we looked at this, we're now on half term three, right, let's put in some questions during the lesson, you know, two weeks ago, we were looking at this, right, who can tell me what variable costs are, what a fixed cost, can you give me an example of what the fixed costs and variable costs for this school are, and just drop it in, five minute break in between topics, right, we're talking about this, right, let's, let's just spend five minutes going over it, and it's about being having that confidence to be able to do that. Yeah, definitely. That's really, really helpful. Thank you. And it's a analogy of learning I've not really considered before. That notion of learning as a jigsaw and about you disseminating information and then the students putting it back together and then everything coming together at the end. And the one follow-up question I'll maybe ask, Nassim, if you don't mind, is, is just that word interleaving. 
and I'm just conscious that there might be people listening who who maybe don't quite have a, a firm grasp on what that actually means in terms of the practical implications on that. And you've given an example at the end there in terms of looking at your students, your units of work coming back to things. But I wonder if you could, wouldn't mind saying a little bit more about that, if that's okay. Yeah, and Jonathan, chip in if uh, you want to here with interleaving. Um, for me, in my own mind, interleaving is where we look at um, topics, but we don't look at them grouped together. In, in business studies, the topics, so we have a paper one and a paper two, and the topics are quite distinct, but they're actually all interwoven as well. So they all kind of link together and, and you've got to make links between one topic and another to be able to answer the higher mark questions and be able to, so you're thinking. And what I would probably say is interleaving is bringing in topics that you've done. So for example, in maths, you might currently be learning algebra but then you interleave some fractions in there and some other maths problems to get them thinking of things that they've done before. So you, you mix in the topics up and you're not teaching by um, you know topic, if you will, and then never revisiting it again until you do some interventions. It, it's interleaved through the curriculum. Is that right? Would you agree with that, Jonathan? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you can have this sort of interleave practice. And I think it's a great point as well that not only does this help with contrast because they're seeing the difference between what they're doing now and what they did perhaps before, they're, they're varying it, they're looking at it in different contrasts. And that kind of, that it's been known for quite a long time that, that knowing what something is is also about knowing what it's not. So you need to kind of recognise the conceptual knowledge and recognise where the sort of boundaries around that are. And it, it can help with, when you... Um, have uh, questions perhaps if you have a set of questions that they're they're on different things so you recognize the students rather recognize um what they're being asked and how it's different from this other topic which is quite hard to see if you study them three months apart or whatever um that can also happen in the initial stage of teaching as well so if you're you know if, for example in geography if you're wanting to sort of say this is what an oxbow lake is you want to say how, how is it different from other kinds of lakes um so you you're showing in that contrast of how this how this differs um, from other things um, so it can happen at the practice phase with questions but it also can happen in the initial um, teaching mm. and I think for me reflecting when I was reading your book I was reflecting on actually and I'm conscious this is very secondary geared this conversation being a secondary student the demands on your memory are probably more extensive than at any other point in your life because you're you're on this conveyor belt of six or seven different subjects a day that's quite intense in terms of content, certainly towards the exam phase, that you're then having to recall and remember and piece together. And the interleaving approach that you've articulated so clearly there, and thank you for that, I think not only does it help with the memory side of things, it also just helps in motivation, in helping young people to look back and, and make connections and, and go, oh, I can still remember that, brilliant. And the, the yeah. subject starts to piece together a little bit more, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. The, I kind of see, well, I mean, I, I don't know if there's research specifically on that, but, you know, seeing where they've come, I think, is that, you know, you can see how, how that could be beneficial. And I think in terms of what uh, Nasima was saying earlier about sort of breaking teaching down, I think that, and, 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 your, and your earlier question, the emphasis perhaps for some teachers is on getting through the content. And then we say, well, let's bring informative strategies it's also about checking that they understand the, the content but i think if you emphasize memory it's it's taking it 
to a kind of another stage, which is let's make sure they still remember that content after a little while, um, because they're not enough to just remember it today and understand it today. Um, so um, bringing it, you know, when you do return to something, I think it, it will be quite nice for students to say, oh well, oh yeah, we did that, and we and we and, and now I can sort of see the context, and I can see kind of see where we're where we're going and where we've come from, um, rather than. The, the, the sort of more negative alternative is reaching uh, the time of their of their prelims or the exams and bringing out their notes and being like, I have no recollection of ever doing this, you know, mm, um, definitely, uh, and, and feeling like they're starting from scratch, which I've certainly you know have heard students say that, and I've heard my own kids say, it. Mm. and it and it strengthens as well those kind of metacognitive skills. I would say, and if only there was a wonderful book coming out about metacognitive skills later in the year from a true expert in it, Jonathan. Right, well, <laughs> well, plug in your it. stuff here. See what we can, see what we can do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's really, really helpful. Sorry, Nasima. Yeah, well, I'd probably add to that as well. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's thinking about student stress and anxiety comes when they're not feeling in control that usually triggers anxiety so if we can teach them strategies to develop their memory and be able to recall and they can actively say yeah I tried that and it really worked you know that will make them feel more confident it will relieve some of that anxiety and stress around well you know I can't do this well yes you can do it because you've you've done it and it and, and I've noticed with students um particularly I mean as one student I miss I don't even know where to start how on earth am I going to remember all this work and it's an enormous source of stress for the young man and his parent um and it was about giving the parent the strategies and saying, well, look, look at these generative learning strategies and talk to your son about them, you know, and, and you can use these to support. And memory doesn't have to be written. It doesn't have to be painful. It doesn't have to be sat down and written. It can be a conversation. What have you learned about history today? Tell me more about that. Have you found, look at their gaps. Right, you've done that now. Now move on to something else. And it's, parents really want to be a big part of supporting their students. And I think some of the strategies we talked about there and I know of a school who's actually put on a session for parents so they've had the parent and the students sat together in a year 11 session they've talked to them exactly all the things that we talked about in our book and equipped the parents and the students and it reduces both parents and students anxiety and stress and if we can do that it, it can only be a positive thing definitely and it's so much more positive than that and I fell into this trap often as a teacher that kind of you've got 20 lessons left before your exams or you've got four weeks left before your exams. It's a practical tool to showcase and help them to bring back that information and and all those excellent elements. So really, really positive stuff. Thank you. So the steps we've gone through there, we've talked about this notion of a a three-part process to your lessons. We've talked about bringing in those generative learning strategies. We've talked about the teacher's confidence in the material and thinking carefully about actually what is the difference between what you're teaching and what students are learning. We've also talked and hopefully helped to clarify what interleaving is and how you can practically apply it in your classroom. I'm wondering in the last five minutes, and we could we could, we could do this podcast for hours, uh, but I'm conscious of both your time. Uh, and I know, Nasima, you've got to go and teach. In 15 minutes, so <laughs> I want to be respectful of that. We've got 45 days left until GCSEs begin, Jeremy. So I won't oh, have- see, there you go. I hope you've got that countdown up. Uh, so what we might do is maybe 
briefly mention about mnemonics because it's something that I've used lots in my own teaching and I've always wondered, are they effective? Are they not effective? And you've got a great chapter on your book and I'm wondering if you could maybe give some tools for people who might want to apply it in a way that might support students' memory in the classroom. I mean, I think one thing we say in the, in the chapter is that mnemonics can be seen as a little bit like scaffolding. So, you know, they, they're there, but they're, they're kind of a temporary thing. We've all been there. You know, some, you have to remember a, a bunch of information and it's, it's quite hard to do. So having a way that the students can, can tackle it, they, they can say, OK, I need to know all these you know, different, um, different waves in, in physics or, or I need to know all these you know, different processes in politics or whatever. Um, different parts of parliament or something. If you have some kind of mnemonic, then that, that can help you just get that initial, that initial, uh, what we might call performance rather than learning. So, so I'm now able to recall it. I'm now able to answer questions. I can test myself and I get it right. I feel a lot more confident about it. But I guess it's not mistaking that for having really permanently learned it, really understood it, really being able to, to um, apply it, as, as Nassim was talking about earlier, in different situations, that flexible learning that's sort of a hallmark of really having mastered something. So I think that it is, to me, kind of a, a useful strategy, but but certainly um, not to be mistaken for actually having learned something. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's, it's all about raising their confidence, giving them that scaffolding, as you were saying, Jonathan, and then over time, removing that scaffolding to bring, build their confidence, reduce their stress and anxiety. And obviously, you're going to have a variance in the classroom of students who can really pick up things really quickly. They've got well-developed schema. You've got students who haven't, you know, often you're working in mixed ability classes. So some students do need that extra cue to be able to get them to the same point as the students that are perhaps performing a, a bit better and being better than they were last time. It's, it's not about comparing them to other students. It's about comparing themselves to, to where they were last time and being able to move forward. So cues will support and then taking the stabilizers, as it were, later on. Once they become more confident, so the more practice they have, the more easier they can recall things. At that point, that cue or scaffolding can be removed. Yeah, that's really helpful. And that's certainly been my, my own experience of using them in the sense that they're initially a really good tool in order to help students grasp how to approach something. So I used the, the, the mnemonic seal when young people were writing about Shakespeare, so it was Shakespeare evidence, analysed language, and then by the time they got to the exam, I'm not saying all of them managed this, but they had that in the back of their mind in terms of how to approach writing analytically about Shakespeare. And again, in the book, there's loads of practical ways that you can implement them and use them effectively. So just before, and what I do at the end of episodes is, is a little one-minute summary of some of the key content. But I'm just wondering, before we do that, in a minute or less, is there anything that you think is essential for teachers to know or practical things they can do in their classroom about memory just to finish things off? Yeah, I mean, to me, I think it's just um, perhaps not seeing memory as kind of like an add-on, as Nassima was saying earlier, not seeing it as about just about mnemonics for exam time, but really seeing this as something that's built in right the way through and can be a feature of, of how you plan every lesson, how you conduct things. So, for example... Um, 
you know, I used to sometimes get students to watch a video and take notes. And now what I would do is get them to watch a video. Then after the video, or maybe even half an hour later, then they write down the notes from recall. And that, that, that process of actively retrieving the information is more challenging, but it sticks it in memory much better. So I think it's things like that where you're kind of building it into the task and everyday process is going to be much more powerful than if you just do it every now and again. Yeah, and for me, it's about being really discerning about what's effective and what's ineffective. There's lots of things out there about memory. I mean, you could spend all day reading different things. And it's about what works in your classroom, not just picking something just because it's out there, being really clear about why you're using it, you know, in your classroom, why does it work? And just being able to communicate to the young people about how they can best use the strategies. So don't keep it to yourself as a classroom teacher. Share it with the young people. Make it a part and parcel of your everyday lessons. It's a part of what we do. Mm, yeah, there's a theme running through both those answers that I've heard there that is is moving beyond the superficial treatment of it, really deeply learning and thinking about memory and its role in our process of supporting learning in classrooms and really embedding it in everything that you do. And if we do that, it seems to me then we're going to really improve the student experience in our classrooms. So it's been a fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. And what maybe do is just do a very quick summary. And it's really hard to condense this into a minute. So today we've been answering the question, what do new teachers need to know about memory? And it's based on the excellent book, from Jonathan and Nasima, which is what teachers need to know about memory. And we started by exploring, we spent about 15 minutes exploring memory in general. And we looked at the difference between long-term and working memory. And long-term memory is that notion of, hence the name, things that students can recall and I know that we've talked about that word, but that last in terms of stick with students on a longer-term basis and the working memory is that short-term memory that they'll reveal in the classroom. And we've looked at lots of practical steps here that you can use to support your students' capacity to remember. So thinking about making sure you've got your content secure in your mind, thinking about that three-part system to learning that Nasima mentioned in terms of how you plan your lessons, thinking about how you can interleave topics and content to support students' understanding of the curriculum as a whole in terms of how they approach it. Also thinking about how mnemonics can be an effective way to hook in and, and encourage them to remember. And then that final message, which is all about this stuff is massively important, thinking about memory and moving beyond the kind of superficial approach in the classroom to embedding it in everything we do as teachers and in the conversations we have about memory with young people including them in that process as well. Does that make sense? I know there's much more to it, but as a brief summary. Yeah, that sounded great to me, Jimmy. I think, yeah, just that, that point as well we, we mentioned earlier about the, how broad it is, you know, it's not just about, and I think you touched on that with it being superficial. So you mentioned Shakespeare, it's not just about memorizing some quotes, for example, but everything you understand about like what happened in a, in a Shakespeare play and the society Shakespeare was living in when he wrote those, uh, you know, all of this is in our memory. So it's not something that just happens now and again. Definitely. I would agree with you there, Jonathan. It's something that you make part and parcel of your everyday 
teaching and learning, it's it's just as important as as good feedback and being able to mark students' work and be able to plan your lessons. It should be right up there at the top in terms of all of those priorities to help students get the best outcomes that they can possibly achieve. Brilliant. Okay, Nassima, so we can make the bell at 12 o'clock. So just very briefly, folks, if you wouldn't mind, where can people find out a little bit more about you, um, your Twitter, websites, things like that, if you don't mind, and where can they buy this brilliant book? Well, I think we're both on Twitter, aren't we? Um, mine is GW underscore Firth. Um, not that I'm on the great deal these days, but uh, now and again. Um, um, I also have a Substack newsletter I send around, which talks quite a lot about memory. <clears throat> which I think is first.substack.com. So if people want to sign up, it's completely free. It's not one of these ones that you have to pay for extra content or anything. It's just a, it's just a free thing for teachers. Okay. And uh, I'm on Twitter mainly, so you can find me on Twitter. So if there's anything that you want to particularly ask, you know, I'm sure Jonathan will be the same, please do get in touch or ask any questions that you want to. Mine's at nsreasat on Twitter. Beautiful. And I'll pop links to follow you and the book and things um, on the show notes for this as well. And thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your knowledge and your understanding. And listeners, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this as much as I have. Um, as always, the only thing I ask of you listeners is if you've enjoyed it, um, please do pass it on. This is a show that relies entirely on audience support uh, that I've abandoned the world of Twitter. So please do pass it on. And thank you so much for listening. Thanks again, folks. Thanks, Jimmy.